Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Drawbridges over moats. Tonight, we'll read a snoozecast adapted excerpt titled The Manor at Burlstone, taken from the Valley of Fear, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The novel was the fourth and final in a series we have read from during the second half of this year. It started with A Study in Scarlet, which aired on June 9th, 2021. You can listen to all episodes from our Sherlock Sleep Story series at snoozecast.com slash series. In this story, Holmes deciphers an encrypted message that warns of a nefarious plot against a country gentleman named Douglas who lived at Burlstone House, an ancient moated manor. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. The village of Burlstone is a small and very ancient cluster of half-timbered cottages on the northern border of the county of Sussex. For centuries, 
it had remained unchanged. But within the last few years, its picturesque appearance and situation have attracted a number of well-to-do residents, whose villas peep out from the woods around. These woods are locally supposed to be the extreme fringe of the great wild forest, which thins away until it reaches the northern chalk downs. A number of small shops have come into being to meet the wants of the increased population, so there seems some prospect that Burlstone may soon grow from an ancient village into a modern town. It is the center for a considerable area of country, since Tunbridge Wells, the nearest place of importance, is ten or twelve miles to the eastward, over the borders of Kent. About half a mile from the town, standing in an old park famous for its huge beech trees, is the ancient manor house of Burlstone. Part of this venerable building dates back to the time of the First Crusade, when a small fort was built in the center of the estate, which had been granted to him by the Red King. This was destroyed by fire in 1543, and some of its smoke-blackened cornerstones were used when, in Jacobian times, a brick country house rose upon the ruins of the feudal castle. The manor house, with its many gables and its small, diamond-paned windows, was still much as the builder had left it in the early 17th century. Of the double moats, which had guarded its more warlike predecessor, the outer had been allowed to dry up and served the humble function of a kitchen garden. The inner one was still there and lay forty feet in breadth, though now only a few feet in depth round the whole house. A small stream fed it and continued beyond it so that the sheet of water, though turbid, was never ditch-like or unhealthy. The ground floor windows were within a foot of the surface of the water. The only approach to the house was over a drawbridge, the chains and windlass of which had long been rusted and broken. The latest tenants of the manor house had, however, with energy, set this right, and the drawbridge was not only capable of being raised, but actually was raised every evening and lowered every morning. By thus renewing the custom of the old feudal days, the manor house was converted into an island. 
during the night, a fact which had a very direct bearing upon the mystery which was soon to engage the attention of all England. The house had been untenanted for some years and was threatening to molder into a picturesque decay when the Douglases took possession of it. This family consisted of only two individuals, John Douglas and his wife. Douglas was a remarkable man, both in character and in person. In age, he may have been about fifty, with a strong-jawed, rugged face, a grizzling mustache, keen gray eyes, and a wiry, vigorous figure which had lost nothing of the strength and activity of youth. He was cheery and genial to all, but somewhat offhand in his manners, giving the impression that he had seen life in social strata on some far lower horizon than the county society of Sussex. Yet, though looked at with some curiosity and reserve by his more cultivated neighbors, he soon acquired a great popularity among the villagers, subscribing handsomely to all local objects and attending their smoking concerts and other functions where, having a remarkably rich tenor voice, he was always ready to oblige with an excellent song. He appeared to have plenty of money, which was said to have been gained in the California gold fields, and it was clear from his own talk and that of his wife that he had spent a part of his life in America. The good impression which had been produced by his generosity and by his democratic manners was increased by a reputation gained for utter indifference to danger. Though a wretched rider, he turned out at every meet and took the most amazing falls in his determination to hold his own with the best. When the vicarage caught fire, he distinguished himself also by the fearlessness with which he re-entered the building to save property after the local fire brigade had given it up as impossible. Thus it came about that John Douglas of the manor house had within five years won himself quite a reputation in Burlstone. His wife, too, was popular with those who had made her acquaintance. Though, after the English fashion, the callers upon a stranger who settled in the county without introductions were few and far between. This mattered the less to her, as she was retiring by disposition and very much absorbed, to all appearance, in her husband and her domestic duties. 
it was known that she was an English lady who had met Mr. Douglas in London, he being at that time a widower. She was a beautiful woman, tall, dark, and slender, some twenty years younger than her husband, a disparity which seemed in no wise to mar the contentment of their family life. It was remarked sometimes, however, by those who knew them best, that the confidence between the two did not appear to be complete, since the wife was either very reticent about her husband's past life, or else, as seemed more likely, was imperfectly informed about it. It had also been noted and commented upon by a few observant people that there were signs sometimes of some nerve strain upon the part of Mrs. Douglas, and that she would display acute uneasiness if her absent husband should ever be particularly late in his return. On a quiet countryside, where all gossip is welcome, this weakness of the lady of the manor house did not pass without remark, and it bulked larger upon people's memory when the events arose which gave it a very special significance. There was yet another individual whose residence under that roof was, it is true, only an intermittent one, but whose presence at the time of the strange happenings which will now be narrated brought his name prominently before the public. This was Cecil James Barker of Hales Lodge, Hampstead. Cecil Barker's tall, loose-jointed figure was a familiar one in the main street of Burlstone Village, for he was a frequent and welcome visitor at the manor house. He was the more noticed as being the only friend of the past unknown life of Mr. Douglas, who was ever seen in his new English surroundings. Barker was himself an undoubted Englishman, but by his remarks it was clear that he had first known Douglas in America, and had there lived on intimate terms with him. He appeared to be a man of considerable wealth, and was reputed to be a bachelor. In age, he was rather younger than Douglas, forty-five at the most, a tall, straight, broad-chested fellow, with a clean-shaved, prize-fighter face, thick, strong, black eyebrows, and a pair of masterful black eyes which might, even without the aid of his very capable hands, clear away for him through a hostile crowd. He neither rode nor shot, but spent his days in wandering round the old village with his pipe in his mouth, or in driving with his host, or in his absence with his hostess over the beautiful countryside. An easy-going, free-handed gentleman, 
said Ames, the butler, but my word, I'd rather not be the man that crossed him. He was cordial and intimate with Douglas, and he was no less friendly with his wife, a friendship which more than once seemed to cause some irritation to the husband, so that even the servants were able to perceive his annoyance. Such was the third person who was one of the family when the catastrophe occurred. As to the other denizens of the old building, it will suffice out of a large household to mention the prim, respectable, and capable Ames and Mrs. Allen, a cheerful person who relieved the lady of some of her household cares. The other six servants in the house bear no relation to the events of the night of January 6th. It was at 11.45 that the first alarm reached the small local police station. In charge of Sergeant Wilson of the Sussex Constabulary. Cecil Barker, much excited, had rushed up to the door and pealed furiously upon the bell. A tragedy had occurred at the manor house, and John Douglas had been murdered. That was the breathless burden of his message. He had hurried back to the house, followed within a few minutes by the police sergeant, who arrived at the scene of the crime a little after twelve o'clock, after taking prompt steps to warn the county authorities that something serious was afoot. On reaching the manor house, the sergeant had found the drawbridge down, the windows lighted up, and the whole household in a state of confusion. The servants were huddling together in the hall, with the butler wringing his hands in the doorway. Only Cecil Barker seemed to be master of himself and his emotions. He had opened the door, which was nearest to the entrance, and he had beckoned to the sergeant to follow him. At that moment, there arrived Dr. Wood, a brisk and capable general practitioner from the village. The three men entered the room together, while the butler followed at their heels, closing the door behind him to shut out the scene from the maidservants. The man in question lay on his back, sprawling with outstretched limbs in the center of the room. He was clad only in a pink dressing gown, which covered his nightclothes. There were carpet slippers on his bare feet. The doctor knelt beside him and held down the hand lamp which had stood on the table. One glance was enough to show the healer that his presence could be dispensed with. The country policeman was unnerved and troubled by the tremendous responsibility which had come so suddenly upon him. 
We will touch nothing until my superiors arrive, he said in a hushed voice. Nothing has been touched up to now, said Cecil Barker. I'll answer for that. You see, it all exactly as I found it. When was that? The sergeant had drawn out his notebook. It was just half past eleven. I had not begun to undress, and I was sitting by the fire in my bedroom when I heard the report. It was not very loud. It seemed to be muffled. I rushed down. I don't suppose it was thirty seconds before I was in the room. Was the door open? Yes, it was open. Poor Douglas was lying as you see him. His bedroom candle was burning on the table. It was I who lit the lamp some minutes afterward. Did you see no one? No. I heard Mrs. Douglas coming down the stair behind me, and I rushed out to prevent her from seeing the sight. Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, came and took her away. Ames had arrived, and we ran back into the room once more. But surely I've heard that the drawbridge is kept up all night. Yes, it was up until I lowered it. Then how could any intruder have got away? It is out of the question. But see, Barker drew aside the curtain and showed that the long diamond-paned window was open to its full extent. And look at this. He held the lamp down and illuminated a smudge like the mark of a boot sole upon the windowsill. Someone has stood there in getting out. You mean that someone waded across the moat? Exactly. Then, if you were in the room within half a minute of the crime, he must have been in the water at that very moment. I have not a doubt of it. I wish to heaven that I had rushed to the window. But the curtain screened it, as you can see, and so it never occurred to me. Then I heard the step of Mrs. Douglas, and I could not let her enter the room. But I say, remarked the police sergeant, whose slow, bucolic common sense was still pondering the open window. It's all very well you're saying that a man escaped by wading the moat. But what I ask you is, how did he ever get into the house at all if the bridge was up? Ah, that's the question, said Barker. At what o'clock was it raised? It was nearly six o'clock, said Ames, the butler. I've heard, said the sergeant, that it was usually raised at sunset. That would be nearer half past four than six at this time of year. Mrs. Douglas had visitors to tea, said Ames. I couldn't raise it until they went. 
Then I wound it up myself. Then it comes to this, said the sergeant. If anyone came from outside, if they did, they must have got in across the bridge before six and been in hiding ever since until Mr. Douglas came into the room after eleven. That is so. Mr. Douglas went round the house every night, the last thing before he turned in to see that the lights were right. That brought him in here. The man was waiting and shot him. Then he got away through the window and left his gun behind him. That's how I read it, for nothing else will fit the facts. The sergeant picked up a card which lay beside the man on the floor. The initials, VV, and under them, the number 341, were rudely scrawled in ink upon it. What's this? he asked, holding it up. Barker looked at it with curiosity. I never noticed it before, he said. The suspect must have left it behind him. VV 341. I can make no sense of that. The sergeant kept turning it over in his big fingers. What's VV? Somebody's initials, maybe. What have you got there, Dr. Wood? It was a good-sized hammer which had been lying on the rug in front of the fireplace. A substantial, workmanlike hammer. Cecil Barker pointed to a box of brass-headed nails upon the mantelpiece. Mr. Douglas was altering the pictures yesterday, he said. I saw him myself, standing upon that chair and fixing the big picture above it. That accounts for the hammer. We'd best put it back on the rug where we found it, said the sergeant, scratching his puzzled head in his perplexity. It'll want the best brains in the force to get to the bottom of this thing. It'll be a London job before it's finished. He raised the hand lamp and walked slowly around the room. Hello, he cried excitedly, drawing the window curtain to one side. What o'clock were those curtains drawn? When the lamps were lit, said the butler, it would be shortly after four. Someone had been hiding here, sure enough. He held down the light, and the marks of muddy boots were very visible in the corner. I'm bound to say this bears out your theory, Mr. Parker. It looks as if the man got into the house after four, when the curtains were drawn, and before six, when the bridge was raised. He slipped into this room, because it was the first that he saw. There was no other place where he could hide, 
So he popped in behind this curtain. That all seems clear enough. That's how I read it, said Barker. But I say, aren't we wasting precious time? Couldn't we start out and scout the country before the fellow gets away? The sergeant considered for a moment. There are no trains before six in the morning, so he can't get away by rail. If he goes by road with his legs all dripping, it's odds that someone will notice him. Anyhow, I can't leave here myself until I am relieved. But I think none of you should go until we see more clearly how we all stand. The doctor had taken the lamp and was narrowly scrutinizing the body. What's this, Mark? He asked. Could this have any connection with the crime? Douglas's right arm was thrust out from his dressing gown and exposed as high as the elbow. About halfway up the forearm was a curious brown design, a triangle inside a circle, standing out in vivid relief upon the pale skin. It's not tattooed, said the doctor, peering through his glasses. I never saw anything like it. The man has been branded at some time as they brand cattle. What is the meaning of this? I don't profess to know the meaning of it, said Cecil Barker, but I have seen the mark on Douglas many times. And so have I, said the butler. Many a time when the master has rolled up his sleeves, I have noticed that very mark. I've often wondered what it could be. And it has nothing to do with the crime, anyhow, said the sergeant. But it's a rum thing all the same. Everything about this case is rum. Well, what is it now? The butler had given an exclamation of astonishment and was pointing at the man's outstretched hand. They've taken his wedding ring, he gasped. What? Yes, indeed. He always wore his plain gold wedding ring on the little finger of his left hand. That ring with the rough nugget on it was above it, and the twisted snake ring on the third finger. There's the nugget, and there's the snake. But the wedding ring is gone. He's right, said Barker. Do you tell me, said the sergeant, that the wedding ring was below the other? Always. Then whoever the suspect was first took off this ring you call the nugget ring, then the wedding ring, and afterwards 
put the nugget ring back again? That is so. The worthy country policeman shook his head. Seems to me the sooner we get London onto this, the better. White Mason is a smart man. No local job has ever been too much for White Mason. It won't be long now before he is here to help us, but I expect we'll have to look to London before we are through. Anyhow, I'm not ashamed to say that it is a deal too thick for the likes of me. At three in the morning, the chief Sussex detective, obeying the urgent call from Sergeant Wilson of Burlstone, arrived from headquarters in a light dog cart behind a breathless trotter. By the 45 train in the morning, he had sent his message to Scotland Yard, and he was at the Burlstone station at 12 o'clock to welcome us. White Mason was a quiet, comfortable-looking person in a loose tweed suit with a clean-shaved, ruddy face a stoutish body, and powerful bandy legs adorned with gaiters. Looking like a small farmer, a retired gamekeeper, or anything upon earth except a very favorable specimen of the provincial criminal officer. He was a very bustling and genial person, this Sussex detective. In ten minutes, we had all found our quarters. In ten more, we were seated in the parlor of the inn and being treated to a rapid sketch of those events which have been outlined in the previous chapter. Holmes sat absorbed with the expression of surprised and reverent admiration with which the botanist surveys the rare and precious bloom. Remarkable, he said, when the story was unfolded. Most remarkable. I can hardly recall any case where the features have been more peculiar. I thought you would say so, Mr. Holmes said White Mason, in great delight. We're well up with the times in Sussex. I've told you now how matters were up to the time when I took over from Sergeant Wilson between three and four this morning. My word, I made the old mare go, but I need not have been in such a hurry as it turned out for there was nothing immediate that I could do. Sergeant Wilson had all the facts. I checked them and considered them and maybe added a few of my own. What were they? 
asked Holmes, eagerly. Well, I first had the hammer examined. There was Dr. Wood there to help me. And then there was the note. Big P, with a flourish above it. E and N. Smaller, asked Holmes. Exactly. 